The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krzyzewskaya. On today's episode, we'll discuss how one can be a med-ed scholar with Dr. Bernice Ruau. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Ruo, tonight. We cover the illustrious topic of medical education scholarship, how one does that scholarship, how one can continue to do it, and so many practical tips about how to thrive as a clinician educator in the academic world. Dr. Ruo is an academic internist, clinician educator, and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. She practices primarily in the outpatient setting and continues to be inspired by her enthusiastic learners. She loves to work on scholarly activities ranging from giving workshops, writing clinical vignettes, designing research projects, mentoring, and debating medical education issues with other colleagues. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's get to it. it. (laughs) Dr. Ruo, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk with you. Are you okay with us calling you Bernice for this recording? Certainly, of course. Wonderful. Well, let's start with some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Can you share a one-liner to describe yourself? So I'm a nerdy academic internist who loves to think about assessment and metamorphosis into a classically trained dancer, open water swimmer, and biscotti baker when not working. Wow, you've got a lot going on. (laughs) I agree. What's the latest biscotti flavor? The classic is chocolate-dipped hazelnut uh, cherry biscotti. Wow. That sounds delicious. I think I think I'm drooling. I didn't think that was possible because <laughs> I was a little dehydrated today, but that was great. <laughs> Bernice, that sounds so good. Please have us over. Um, or I am now inviting Molly and myself over to your biscotti <laughs> tea party. Um, well, on a separate note, um, probably equally creative, is there a book, movie, show, or album that you've recently enjoyed uh, or maybe even in the past um, that you wanted to share with our audience? I read a a fairly recent book called Deep by James Nestor, and it's like a really amazing discussion about um, free diving that I knew nothing about and ocean animal adaptation, which was amazing, echolocation, all these things. And um, it was really interesting in a whole different uh, way and topic that I had never explored. Very cool. Um, Are you... As an open water swimmer, interested in free diving, or I don't know. It's like it sounds so <laughs> intriguing by their description because it sounds like you can see all this like areas of the ocean and explore and the calm that they sense. But then there's also the counterpart of a really scary side of things where they talk about like 
practicing prolonged breath holds, which are obviously important in freediving. And then also they talk about the extreme, which is the competitions like no limits freediving, where they use weights and fins and go down to like 240 meters underwater. And then they come up and sometimes they're like mucous membranes are actually bleeding from the like pressure changes and how like you can't pass out. Otherwise, it's not a legal dive and things like that just sound very scary. So <laughs> maybe the basics of just uh, diving 10 or 20 feet, but probably not deeper than that. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, can you share something that you've changed in your practice or that you're working on practicing recently, maybe a teaching or communication technique? One thing I've been working on was something I actually learned recently at National S Gym. I went to this workshop on like time management and it was packed, which I was so surprised because there were like 100 people in this workshop at least. And um, I've been trying to take one of the things that they said during that and try it. And it was that uh, trying to tackle your to-do list by doing the most difficult thing first. So if you get nothing else done in the day that you feel pretty good about it. And uh, the quote they said was, if your job's to eat a frog, then it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if your job's to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. And it's a Mark Twain quote. So I've been trying it along with one of my colleagues. And each time we do that, we're like, I'm eating a frog. And we're like, what frog are you eating? And so we've been trying to uh, be good about eating frogs. <laughs> That's a great one. I, I often leave the like my chart message requests from patients. I'm like, this one's going to be too complicated. I'll just put it off. And then four days later, I'm like, oh, no, I really should have dealt with that. So excellent advice. I agree. I also feel like the accountability of the frog eating is also really nice to just have somebody to share that with, which is wonderful. Well, on a similar note, Bernice, would you be able to share some meaningful advice or maybe feedback that you've received during your career or training? I think a lot about like certain quotes and a lot of times people have told me in academic things to make it count twice and try and turn all activities into something that might be scholarship or can um, be applied in different ways. And second was, I think, a colleague of mine, when I took my first job, she said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of good. And at first, I really disagreed with it, because I was like, but don't you want it to be really, really good and just not so-so? And so I really disagreed with it. But then more and more so, I realized a lot of times it's what made me procrastinate and put off doing things because I wanted to have enough time to do it so well, right? That I never started, right? It was reluctant to start. And just kind of having that mindset of like, I can start it and then I can make it better really helped me. So I think uh, in the end, I actually like it, even though at first I was actually kind of turned off by that uh, quote. Well, thank you. I think those are both a great setup for our topic today. Um, but before we dive more into that, Ira, do you want to share a pick of the week? I do, Molly. Thank you for that suggestion. Uh, I just dropped a non-zero amount of dollars on a CME called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. And this is a conference brought to Napa, California by the um, Harvard Chan School of Public Health and the Culinary Institute of America at Copia in Napa. And basically, it is a CME. I think it's the coolest CME I've ever been to in terms of confer a conference that bridges nutrition science, healthcare, culinary arts. There's even a little bit of exercise science. 
And we really got to learn from the world's experts, actually a really multidisciplinary group of experts around healthy eating, um, kind of exercise regimens, and not to mention had the best conference food of my life. So I will say if anyone is looking for a CME to go to February 8th through 10th in 2023, um, this is the Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives. I think it would be really amazing to just see it. I will say I went to the one this year and got to um, cook in their test in their huge kitchen and learn from some of the most amazing physician chefs, nutrition experts, exercise science experts. So I really would highly suggest that. And you're is not paid by them, I assume. Zero percent, zero percent. In fact, I am actively paying them a lot of money to <laughs> go to this conference, but just wanted to share the excitement. I think some of the nurse practitioners in my office have gone there and said it was amazing. So, oh, And a good excuse to go up to Napa. Oh my gosh, totally. Yeah. Uh, my pick of the week is going to be uh, the Clinical Problem Solvers have an anti-racism in medicine series. And I just started listening recently and they are just so well done and really amazing guests and amazing topics that go beyond um, just kind of clinical medicine and really talking about broader systemic issues like homelessness, policing, incarceration, all kinds of things that impact health in ways beyond just kind of our immediate things that we deal with in the clinic. And I, I just it's really made me think deeply and uh, appreciate having access to just some, some really amazing speakers. So I would encourage listening to the Clinical Problem Solvers anti-racism series. Um, well, let's jump into our case here. Ira, do you want to head us off? Totally. So we have Corey here, who's a second year uh, attending in hospital medicine. And in addition to being the best hospitalist and generalist that she can be, Corey has an academic interest in transitions of care and teaching learners about safe transitions of care. She helped with a QI project when she was a resident around instituting discharge timeouts. But besides presenting that work at her institution's QI symposium, uh, she really hasn't had much dissemination of that initiative beyond that. And Corey is meeting with you, we'll say you, Bernice, <laughs> to discuss what she can do to publish or spread the word about her hard work and dig into her academic interests around transitions of care further. I think this kind of really plays on some of your most meaningful advice that you gave us at the beginning uh, of the episode. But just taking a step back, Bernice, I just wonder, when did becoming a medical education or med ed scholar become a thing? I know people are so busy clinically that it uh, feels like adding on an extra expectation to disseminate their work is a pretty tall order. So I just wonder if you could maybe walk us through the history of how this became uh, an entity. Well, I think it's been going on for a while. I suspect just in academic medical centers that kind of the tripartite mission of caring for patients, teaching students and residents, along with doing research or clinical research has been ongoing for quite a while, probably decades at least, um, probably a little bit more formalized in the past 25 years or so. I think as some universities created different um, promotion tracks that um, have traditionally included researchers separate from clinicians, but many have created kind of a clinical educator tract that's distinct from these two, that it's become more of like something we talk about and that we hear more about um, medical education scholarship in this type of context. 
And then I think also in this same time frame of about 20, 20, 25 years or so, there have been more like medical education fellowships that are um, available. Um, they're often one to two years in duration and um, can incorporate some formal coursework, either a MPH, a master's in health professionals education or a master's in education. And what made you passionate about scholarship and medical education? It's so interesting because it's like, I think I've trained in institutions where it was just common to do scholarly activity. So I never really thought of it as something separate than what I've done. And so like, I was at fellowship, Gen Med Fellowship at UCSF. And that's where I wrote my first like research abstract, created my first like poster presentation, did my first oral presentation at SGEM wrote my first manuscripts, which were ridiculously long and went through so many versions. And um, and then later I collaborated with colleagues at Northwestern to start to do workshops and I really enjoyed them. And then now it feels kind of natural to do them. And like, I don't think of them as separate. And I guess still being in an academic center, I always think like, oh, it's that time of the year. Like right now it's regional ACP coming up in September deadline. So we're writing vignettes and workshops and working on these things and also brainstorming some kind of like it's a new academic year. So some projects for the upcoming year that might be done in education. So that may might be next year's uh, projects that could be written up. And Bernice, you've kind of mentioned a few uh, types of dissemination that you yourself have done uh, in terms of vignettes and posters and workshops. And I wonder if you can give us some more examples of maybe types of dissemination. And if you're not ready to kind of launch into that long manuscript, you know, what are other ways that you could present your work or kind of really get spread the word about it? a lot of times you can start small. A lot of times we get intimidated thinking you have to have like grants and then write papers. But I think we can start a lot smaller. We can think about getting involved in regional meetings and volunteering and learning about the research that's going on and topics that people are working on. And you will see their examples of um, education projects. And then a lot of times we're like, oh, that's really interesting. And then we can contact those individuals to collaborate or introduce ourselves at the meeting and then come home with some ideas of things we could do. And then I think we can start with small things like clinically, the example I give is I always keep a list of kind of interesting cases so that then I have uh, maybe 50% will evolve into something that could be written up as a clinical vignette. And then I might offer it to a third year student who's working with me to write it. And then it'd be kind of um, also act as a, a mentoring activity in helping the student write. Um, another example might just be taking a project. So I think like the case you mentioned with Corey, if she had a um, resident project at the, I think you said it was a discharge timeout, that I might suggest writing up that project for a regional meeting to be able to share just what was done. Sometimes we think there's such a large hurdle, like we have to have conquered some large obstacle, coming up with this great discovery. But a lot of times, small things that work and help are really useful and other institutions appreciate hearing and learning about it. And again, someone might come up to you during, during your presentation and be like, we're interested in working on this, or how did you do this? And then you can turn it into a larger project together. And maybe you'll modify it some, maybe you'll improve what you did before. But these are ways to kind of build that um, kind of network and dissemination of your work. And also when we meet other people at 
different institutions, sometimes we can ask if um, they have a division grand rounds or things where we could invite them as speakers to our institution. And similarly, they might invite us to share our ideas and then be able to develop the collaborations more uh, commonly. Thanks for saying that, Bernice, because I think sometimes we feel like there's such a barrier to entry to write something up. Like, if I did this discharge timeout, I must have had to, you know, prevent so many readmissions in order to make this a meaningful kind of thing to disseminate, as opposed to, no, you just, you know, created a test of change, just put that out there into the ether, maybe it's like a clinical innovations abstract or something like that, and, you know, put it out there and see what happens. And like you said, maybe it would spark some um, networking or connections from other institutions. So really kind of highlighting that it's not that big of a barrier. It's just you got to kind of jump over it or step over it a little bit. Yeah, I think doing it a few times makes it um, feel a little more natural. And um, over time, we realized um, which context is good for presenting it at and uh, how it um, really does help share and uh, meet people who are interested in similar things and allow us to kind of grow the projects from there into larger ones that can be multi-institutional. And Yeah, and I think that gets us into kind of a, a question of what should faculty kind of be thinking about when they're setting up a goal for publishing their work? I mean, I think there's kind of this idea that publishing in medicine doesn't just, you know, that we might kind of fall back and think it should just be publishing in the Journal of Academic Medicine. And you've already highlighted that there are many ways to to share and disseminate other than something that big. Um, what are some of the barriers that need to be recognized up front, especially in early career med ed scholars? And how do you suggest Corey and others might start to overcome some of those barriers? I think probably the most common barriers early on is time because the time we spend for our um, academic kind of scholarly activities, for most of us who are educators and primarily uh, educators and clinicians, it's unpaid time that's usually spent on our scholarly activity until we perhaps get a larger grant or apply for funds to do some of this uh, work. So I think the time persistence and a little bit of thick skin is what's required kind of as we start out. But the activities that we do don't necessarily have to be large chunks of time. So I usually say we can work on things in small pieces and then build on them, and then they don't seem like such huge tasks. So a lot of times I might say starting with like taking that project and suggesting writing an abstract just to present it at a regional meeting. Um, second might be um, maybe reading about other people in a regional hospitals or regional in your region's med, uh, other academic centers to learn if there's others with interest in these same areas and like emailing them to just reach out. And then sometimes you can kind of build the next step of the project together. Another part is thinking about like workshops where it might just be an interesting topic. And sometimes workshops seem hard because you're like, I'm by no, by no means the expert in this. But a lot of times just being interested and doing a really good lit review and polling people about like the tips and then putting together a topic can be really interesting. And then once you give the workshop, people look to you as kind of having given a workshop, then ask you to give a talk about that topic again. And then you kind of become the expert on it and you can continue to develop that. And obviously a workshop we rarely give individually. So we also get to meet others like I've given mentoring workshops in the past and then definitely met many, several people who are way more expert at mentoring than I am and uh, 
together have built that kind of repertoire of like tools and tips and things to give a talk or a workshop about mentoring. And Bernice, if we think about Corey in the situation and her barriers that may be popping up, I wonder how would you advise her relative to kind of this residency project? We talked about maybe, you know, small chunks or um, a regional innovation, but if you're if we're trying to go along with your advice of making things count twice, that was not supposed to rhyme, but that just happened. Um, would, what would you suggest to Corey or kind of how would you advise her on this? So I usually say two parts. One is don't let it stop. It's just being the project that maybe you did as part of residency and maybe it was an internal poster. Um, maybe you think of it as a poster for if the university or the school has a symposium on medical education. It takes it kind of out of your own division and department to be shared a little more broadly. So it could be kind of a within institution, but outside of your department sharing. Um, because other um, services and other um, residency programs will have the same issues and they will be as interested, but they may not know even if we're within our own institution. So sharing it on that level would probably be the first place, I would say. And then next might be using it to write the abstract to present at a regional meeting would be a second part of it. Then third, I would often say, what would you do as next steps? And sometimes it might be a little bit of a needs assessment based on what you found from the first project, or how could you build on it to do a next step type project? And this way, it doesn't necessarily stop, even if it was really small, it can still be the kind of just the uh, instigating flame for kind of an idea that can become something that burns really bright as we develop it and think about it. And everything starts from kind of these pilot studies and just ideas and very small projects. And then we often improve on its design, collaborate with others to make it larger, kind of optimize what we think helps and uh, learn from the prior steps. So those are kind of ways I would start with hers. I appreciate you breaking it down and that that does feel very doable and practical to kind of start out with what you've worked on locally and then build it into something bigger over time. If someone like Corey wants to really advance her skills, are there specific training programs or faculty development programs that you would recommend for a career in as a clinician educator? And I know you mentioned, mentioned some of the fellowship options. It's, is that something that you would strongly recommend for someone going into medical education and being a clinician educator or what other kinds of things could a mid-career faculty look into? I think it's a, still a bit debatable. I guess if people know early on that they're interested, say during residency or as junior faculty, that's probably the most common time that someone might then decide to do a med-ed fellowship or to do a master's. I don't think it's absolutely necessarily, even though it's helpful, because one can still do separate coursework if one felt, you know, certain skills and um, would be helpful. However, there's plenty of other faculty development programs around the country that if someone's interested in education and medical education and wants to further develop their skills, um, that overlap with some of the more formalized fellowship programs. And some of the examples are like SGEM sponsors the TEACH program so that uh, junior faculty can participate in kind of a year-long distance mentoring along with um, developing an education portfolio and then participate over the course of, say, um, two national meetings to uh, participate in workshops specifically focused on medical education. 
Um, there's several others, though. There's, I believe, the Harvey, Harvard Macy's program, um, as well as a Stanford Faculty Development Program. The AAMC also sponsors faculty development programs for each of the stages of assistant professors, associate professors to um, cultivate kind of um, how to strategize and network and improve academic uh, promotions and scholarship. Bernice, those are amazing resources. I wonder if we take a step back thinking about Corey and, you know, her experience in residency. She got to do this project around discharge timeouts. And I wonder, are there things that you can think of, and maybe you're doing it at your own institution, that can help earlier in the pipeline uh, in terms of folks who, you know, maybe intern year, they're like, yes, I want to be a med ed scholar and I want to take this project to its logical conclusion, like, are there things, maybe best practices that residency programs can incorporate into their curricula or into kind of the electives that they offer their trainees for folks who are interested in pursuing a career in academic medicine, specifically focused around maybe medical education scholarship? I think there's some things they're doing here at UCSD in the internal medicine residency in the sense of trying to create opportunities for um, kind of learning and practicing teaching skills. So, for example, I think each of the third-year residents practices precepting an intern towards the end of the year during clinic, and an attending watches the third-year precept the intern. And it's kind of a nice model of seeing um, how it works and uh, being able to practice skills where they can learn beforehand kind of different models of how do you present an um, precept in the ambulatory setting, and then they can give it, choose one of the models and then give it a try and see how it feels in the setting of, um, of uh, precepting. I think a lot of times our third years mentioned that they didn't even realize that there were different models of how you can do ambulatory precepting and that there were some different structural frameworks to follow, uh, whether it, uh, and so they're uh, thinking about two whole new things at once, one being the preceptor and then secondly realizing that there are different uh, uh, models that you could try and see how um, how it varies with learners and different learner um, abilities and uh, experiences trying the different and I'm just going to amplify that plug that you didn't know that you were plugging is that we have a episode from the Curbsiders Teach on the ambulatory models of precepting. So kind of the potpourri around one minute preceptor snaps and uh, precepting in the presence of patients. So thank you, Bernice, for highlighting that. So if anybody wants to listen, um, check out our uh, check out the episode with Dr. Ray and um, no, but uh, yes, back to you, Bernice, in terms of other best practices, uh, maybe that residencies can incorporate if folks are interested in being that med ed scholar uh, early on. I think also sometimes allowing chief residents to teach in medical school classes and seminars is another good way to get experience. And then I think if residencies also support kind of attending conferences so that um learners can get exposed to kind of the basic medical education topics from these type of workshops that might include like how to create a good learning climate, how to um, teach clinical reasoning about these types of different side types of bedside teaching models, how to be a good mentor or mentee, how to effectively give feedback are kind of um, good things to be exposed to early. And obviously we have our in internal seminars on it or 
talks, then it's great. But sometimes otherwise, um, being able to attend regional meetings or um, to learn about these topics is really helpful. And you've mentioned kind of mentoring and networking a few times. Do you have any best practices within a program to help early career faculty kind of plug in with the best mentors? Or is there anything that UCSD is doing that you feel like is working really well? It's tricky, I guess. I think mentoring programs, it's always, we always hear about how mentoring is really important. I think everyone will say yes. It's often hard to create the structure of assigning mentors because sometimes mentors also have to be a good fit. So it may take trying a few mentors to find someone who is the best fit, or maybe you have several mentors. When I was in fellowship, I was one of the few who had several mentors because I think no one was perfectly overlapping in, say, my content area, as well as my like kind of methodology of research I was interested in and in GIM. So I ended up having several mentors, kind of one for each. And though not ideal, obviously it's best if one person can mentor you in all of those. It was also kind of nice to have a variety because it, one, actually gave me more projects than other fellows because I worked with each of them on a project. And then it also gave allowed them to provide me different perspectives of how they tackled certain issues, whether it be like a manuscript rejection or like uh, a communication uh, conflict or things like that. And just being able to ask each of them for their input and get different kind of perspectives on it. And sometimes we ask guests at the beginning of the show, but we didn't for you. Um, I, I think it's sometimes hear, helpful to hear sort of a failure or a setback. Um, since you kind of brought that up, is there one that sort of comes to mind that you'd feel comfortable sharing in your journey as a meded scholar and sort of what you learned from that? Sure. The one that always comes to mind is uh, the one I wrote in my uh, college application essays. I wrote on failure. And I wrote that um, it was based on this quote I'd heard really close to when I was writing. And it said, failure is more often the failure to try rather than the failure of the attempt itself. And the example um, that still remained my favorite was being a dancer. Um, I auditioned for the Fresno Ballet where I grew up um, in high school, but I'd only been dancing for less than one year. And um, I was pretty fearful because I knew how much of a beginner I was compared to people who started when they were like three. But I wanted to give it a try. And um, I wasn't chosen, but I learned a lot from the experience. And it included things like smiling in the setting of being feeling uncomfortable, um, like being proud of what I could do, even if it was just the basics. And then also to be really receptive and open to the feedback because they gave comments. And uh, I succeeded the next time, maybe six months later or so, for a small part in Cinderella. But I think those same skills serve me well as a lifelong learner. I think that, you know, be courageous about embracing new experiences that can still be uncomfortable and to welcome feedback. Wow, I love that, Bernice. I feel like you also found a way to like turn a, a potential wound, uh, you know, into wisdom and kind of learn from that experience and, and really move forward. And I wish I was there to see your Cinderella performance. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> do you still dance, by the way? I do. Wow. That's amazing. Like in a, I was about to be like, like in a rec league. I was just, I had a moment where I was like, how does one, I guess like in classes or like in, uh, in open adult troops. classes. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then recently I was a pirate in Peter Pan. 
Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's so exciting. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, you know, speaking of Peter Pan and pirates and secrets and treasures, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your uh, recipe, if you have one, or a secret sauce, if you feel like there are ingredients that go into that for someone, let's say Corey, to become a successful educator and scholar or med-ed scholar. It's always a little tricky. I would say first is just do what you love. A lot of what we do is challenging and slow. And so if we're interested in what we're doing, it makes the process all the more enjoyable along the way. Work on several projects at once. They'll be likely in different phases. Some will or will not succeed. And um, work in teams. It's much more fun. It keeps us accountable to each other. We can get more things done. And finding a good mentor and kind of behind it all, be persistent and don't take like rejections, whether it be a grant rejection, a manuscript rejection, an abstract rejection personally, because it happens to all of us. And when we write our CVs or we read about really successful people, we see their list of successes. But if you we ever hear about like career talks, like I always remember hearing in fellowship and things was, well, they're so wonderfully successful. But when they talk about their career path, we see that everyone has many, many detours and faced a lot of rejections and failures, but all we see is all the successes when we read a CV. And so similarly, when we receive those things, we shouldn't feel bad about them, but just realize that, you know, that's part of the natural process. So I usually say, just put aside for a week or two and then read the comments when you no longer feel uh, sensitive about it anymore. And then you can kind of, regather your thoughts and decide on next steps. That is some great advice. How do you actually do this yourself? Um, Are there recommendations that you have for kind of resources to continue learning for other attendings or practical tips about how you keep beefing up your skills? I don't know. I guess I, I work on many projects at once. I used to call it juggling. Now I'm thinking there's probably a better word for it. Maybe it's like spinning tops because things don't actually actually need to crash or don't actually fall apart so badly. They just slow down like tops do if they're spinning and you can revisit it another time too. So I think spinning tops might be a new, newer analogy. I think I try to work on many projects at once and then resources. I try to continue to attend workshops. I feel like I still learn new skills, sometimes refreshing um, ideas I haven't thought about for a while. I still enjoy meeting colleagues that are um, in the area. I moved to San Diego about five years ago and still continue to expand kind of the network based on who comes to the meetings and meeting new collaborators, Um, being able to introduce people that, you know, end up being good contact persons for some of my mentees or um, later go to their uh, institutions. I enjoy, you know, in the activities that I do of either doing workshops or presenting, being able to expand that network to either serve as a mentor or a mentee in places and uh, build upon that structure of kind of uh, helping foster that network, I think. The same way that I'm having a student, last year a student of mine um, that's a third year student, is a clinical student in primary care clerkship, wrote a clinical vignette with me. And then last year she presented it at regional ACP and was lucky enough to present it both at SGIM and National SGIM. And this year she's mentoring another student in writing her first abstract. 
And then a resident of mine who has a great case didn't have too much time to write his up, but she's going to help him write his and he will help enter her and I will help edit. So in kind of multiple layers of mentoring and uh, teaching and allowing her to be a mentor and mentored by residents, I think we help create that network of uh, kind of how I learned, right? If you learn to do scholarly activity um, together and in teams and in a mentored way, it feels very natural and doesn't feel so hard and such a burden. And rather, it feels pretty interesting and um, a fairly easy task and a fun one to do together. And um, so I hope to introduce them to this idea by exposing them early. And Bernice, for you personally, when you're leading like a project, do you have, I don't know, a numerical goal like in 2022, I will publish one thing a year. And maybe that thing can look different. It can be, you know, something that you, like you just mentioned, this incredible networking kind of trickle down waterfall. But if the, if for you personally, do you set kind of expectations like that? Or do you have a goal where you're going to do kind of one scholarly thing a year or like and meet that criteria or any kind of uh, similar setting? I guess in an ideal world, most people would say yes, like between like one to three scholarly type things a year. But it's really hard because not all scholar things are exactly equal in weighting and value. So I think probably more and it's kind of almost looking too far ahead to try and schedule that probably better is to have more things in the works so that that's more likely to happen. So that's where I think kind of always having projects in different stages. So even if I might still be rewriting a manuscript right now, um, I'm also thinking about starting some new projects for this upcoming year so that next year they might be the ones that are being written up. And then these vignettes are being written up, but I don't have too many more interesting cases. So I'm trying to keep an eye out for interesting cases that we could use for clinical vignettes, you know, next year. We may not have a lot of time to do all of them simultaneously, but then being keeping in mind that um, trying to have active projects in these phases or to spend some time on each of them in turn is worthwhile so that there won't be really quiet phases where we have nothing to work on because somebody's, I don't know, reviewing the manuscript and it takes three months and absolutely zero is happening. So in the meantime, we could be editing a vignette or we could be revising a project that maybe we're writing for an IRB submission or something like that. And it sounds like your um, students have a wonderful mentor that they can easily reach out to. Um, how do you talk to them about where to submit the vignettes and like think about where's, you know, what might be the best place to publish them or share them? Yeah, so I think that's where having a mentor is helpful, because they can help choose and target which journal would be an appropriate place for the clinical vignette based on its kind of novelty and importance in the field. There are many tiers. So almost always, I'd say there's a home for most things. But we have to kind of uh, choose our target journals wisely. Um, and it's always okay to be a little ambitious uh, first, but then just knowing that we have backup other places to submit it as well. Um, and I think that's true too for conferences as well, so that we can always start regionally and smaller conferences. So we get an opportunity to present and share. And then depending on the topic, maybe uh, we aim for the national conference, but not all of them maybe get accepted and that's okay. 
Bernice, I wonder with all of the spinning tops that are happening in your uh, in your world of kind of meta scholarly projects, and given the workshop that you attended around time management, how do you balance all of these various projects? It's you know I heard there was maybe large frog eating uh, kind of steps along the way, but if you could share maybe tips for the the newly minted kind of junior faculty who may have only one or two tops, but are trying to kind of think about having four spinning tops. There's no one right answer, I guess, is what I would share. And so everyone comes up with their own. And it's tricky because I would probably say, you know, we shouldn't make it where it has to be balanced because what is balance? But maybe that sometimes we spend more time on what's important here in this phase of our life. And another times we spend more time on something else. But what we can try to do is, like you said, maybe it's one small thing we can still do at the same time that's part of scholarly work. And it's okay to, you know, realize that things are slow, but sometimes it's good to write out some small goals and small steps that really break down a bigger task into many small steps so we can feel like, oh, I could tackle this one piece. I can't do that whole project today, but I can start by writing, you know, trying to do a literature search on the background, or maybe I can send an email to my current collaborators and start this going again, because we've kind of dropped the ball after a few weeks of everyone being on vacation, and we can set up another meeting to get going. And so very small tasks can help us get started. I think carving out dedicated time, even if it's just an hour here and there on the week, can allow us to be like, I'll try and get this task done. And again, a very small task. And having, I think, lower expectations about how much we get done allows us to start. And then if we happen to have the ball rolling and feel like we've got great momentum, sometimes we'll, you know, keep going and get more things done that time or that hour than we normally might. But at least um, getting started is, I think, half the battle most of the time when we're busy. So I think, uh, giving ourselves permission to have small tasks and just that to get done is a lot easier than envisioning. I need to work on, you know, writing the paper in this hour, just being daunted by that and never starting. I know for me, that can be a huge hurdle. Well, thank you. This has been so great. I, I think just such a great broad strokes, but then also some really practical tips. Do you have some main take-home points for our listeners? I guess I'd stick with do what you love, work in teams, and be persistent and find a good mentor along the way. Excellent advice. Anything that you've recently published or put out there that you'd like to plug? Still in writing process. <laughs> can you give us a teaser or something that we can look out for, Bernice? I mentioned that I really like thinking about assessments. So my most recent project has been thinking about when you have multiple, say, small group evaluators how you can try to do adjustments or minimize bias for kind of what we know exists as hawks and doves graders. And uh, you can imagine how this might still exist even in the, say, clinical words where someone might evaluate one person per month over the whole course of the year, but then um, their range of what they use for scores may be very different than another hospitalist or attending who also is on service. And is that actually fair or biased to use the raw scores if their ranges differ. And so it's a, a project that's kind of uh, intriguing to me to think about. Like, we obviously have no perfect gold standard. And how do we 
measure and capture something like this? And how do we make it as most equitable and um, accurate that we can? Age-old adage and difficulty of assessment. <laughs> you definitely piqued my interest. I am looking forward to hearing more about that because it feels like there's a lot of faculty development to happen or to come out of a project like that as well. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. We really appreciate your time. Well, that was an amazing conversation around scholarship and medical education. Ira, do you have any take-home points? Yes, Molly. I think I literally had moments where I was like just trying to keep up with what Bernice was saying and write down all her pearls. But I really like the reflection on the project and kind of writing down the small steps and tackling those kind of smaller pieces of a larger project because it allows me to really feel like I'm doing something and maybe kind of breaks down a larger project um, into smaller bite size, more doable pieces, at least for me. What about you, Molly? I really like how she focused on starting small and building up and building a team to work with, because I think sometimes we feel kind of isolated in primary care, at least I do. And, you know, being part of a broader community can really help bring joy to the work and just make it more doable. And we can learn so much from each other. So I, I appreciated her focus on working together. And then I also appreciated her, her suggestion of kind of having multiple spinning tops at once, because things do take a long time. And sometimes there's downtime on certain projects. And so just kind of parsing out an hour a week to work on whatever seems like your biggest priority at that point and just keeping a variety of things going, I think were great suggestions. I agree. I love that. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Lotto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Special thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio and our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram, John Ung on Twitter, and our website team from Podpaste. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein. Mm-hmm.